The journey anthropologist and writer Dame Anne Salmond has made into Te Ao Māori as a Pākehā over 50 years has been remarkable. Dame Anne Salmond's latest book, Knowledge is a Blessing on Your Mind, is a selection of her writing and each article has a personal introduction. Salmond is a distinguished professor of Māori studies and anthropology at the University of Auckland and in 1999 she and her late husband, Jeremy Salmond, established the Waikiraru eco-sanctuary in Taitawhiti, Gisborne. Well, and firstly, I really wanted to offer my condolences on the passing of, of your husband earlier this year, Jeremy. It really shines through that you, you, you guys were very much a team. Yeah, we had a, we had a wonderful time together. I, I wanted to pay tribute to him because really he's, he's actually made a huge contribution to our arts and culture through heritage. Um, yeah, I think of the Civic Theatre as a conservation architect and the Auckland Art Gallery, the Jewish Synagogue, these, these really important key buildings. Well, we launched the book in Devonport because I think he's touched almost every house there <laughs> over the years. <laughs> and he was, he's just so present in that landscape. Your book, is a, to me, feels like a very personal one. You, you've, you've done personal introductions to this real, really quite wide variety of pieces. Why, why did you decide to take that personal route? Well, that was Jeremy's idea because ah. when it came up, you know, the idea of uh, publishing some of my unpublished or lesser available articles and bits of writing... Uh, when that came up, he said, "Ah, oh, because I was bored by the idea. You know, I'm like <laughs> most writers. Once I've written something, that's that. Um, I'm on to the next thing. But um, Jeremy sort of said, well, why don't you write something about what was going on when mm. you wrote that article or that piece? Mm. And as soon as I started doing that, it got really interesting. It was fascinating. Yes. I, I wondered, it's almost like notes towards a memoir. Will you write a memoir or do you think this is it? <laughs> Well, I've always resisted. I really, you know, I'm an anthropologist, so I'm interested in other people uh, yes. and their lives. And that's always been my fascination. And I've tended to often efface myself, I think, in, the, in those kind of exchanges because it's them I'm interested in. And so this was a halfway house, I suppose. Your great-grandfather was an artist, yes? He was an artist and a filmmaker and a photographer really early on. So mm. he was one of the, um, he was the first government kinematographer in New Zealand, actually. <laughs> so he, he, he trained as, as an artist and a sculptor in, in Melbourne and then came back and yes. uh, was a cartoonist for a while down in Otago and, and then got into film and, and photographs. And he ended up the, as acting director of the Dominion Museum a lot and became fascinated with Māori art and then participated in these wonderful expeditions with Apirandangata uh, as the instigator but also Terangihiro are very much a part of it. Just after World War I, when Upi thought that many ancestral tikanga were in danger of disappearing, yeah. and he wanted to use these cutting-edge um, technologies to record these particular art forms. So my great-grandfather took, made these films and a wonderful series of photographs from ancestral times. So were you kind of, uh, did you get subjected, well, subjected is the wrong word, did you, <laughs> I mean, did you get to, you know, was that part of your upbringing as a, as, as a, as a young girl or a young woman to, to find out about your, your, your great-grandfather's legacy? Well, when I was quite small, you know, my mum, I'm one of eight, so mum was having babies re relatively often, ah. and um, I was sent down to stay with my grandmother down in Wellington, and she had these cartons of my great-grandfather's sketches and marble notebooks in her garage, and when I got really bored, mm. I used to go out there and poke around, and I found these <laughs> cartons, and they were just, you know, I was riveted. 
So you you just discovered them on your own, just fosking. Yeah, because I really was bored, <laughs> and and I had this wonderful great aunt. You know, she'd been a flapper and uh, still <laughs> smoked with a one of those kind of ebony, um, you know, I think cigarette you, holders. I think you probably uh, and sort of cultural one one as we call this program need to explain what a flapper is to the younger uh, generation. Well, the nineteen twenties sort of you know very modern um, at that time, very contemporary and and glamorous. Uh, Young women. Thank you for that definition. Right. <laughs> but um, anyway, she used to take me to, she was very fond of her father and used to take me to the Dominion Museum and there was a model par there that he'd made. And I remember that and various sculptures that he'd done as well. Does it still exist? Um, I'm not sure. I think it might have got de-acquisitioned. Somebody who's even more present in your book is the person who really gifted you the the title of the book, Knowledge is a Blessing on Your Mind, Itawera, um, Sterling. It sounded like a profound gift that you had in terms of an entry into sort of te ao Māori as, as a young anthropologist. Yeah, well, it was before I was an anthropologist too. Um, it was my first year at university. Wow. And I'd been away to the States on a field scholarship and had to give all these talks to Kiwanis and Rotary, you know, at the great old age of 16 and 17. Mm. And and I realised when they asked me anything about, you know, Maori life, I was <laughs> profoundly ignorant and almost ended up making some of it up, and I felt ashamed about that. Um, so when I came home, I started to learn te reo, mm. and in Gisborne uh, from George Marsden, who was teaching at a boys' high at that, at that particular time. And when I went to varsity um, at the end of that year... I went to anthropology because that's where I could learn uh, te reo. Oh, I was so at you a party. Oh, <laughs> so you went to anthropology because you wanted to learn te reo Māori. Yeah, that's how it happened. Mm. Um, and so I was going out with this guy, and his his mum was a friend of Armedia's, um, Armedia Sterling's. They'd been at high school together and run away from school together because his mum was German and she was Māori. And at Wellington Ladies College, um, I think they both felt out of it, and so they ran away <laughs> and remained friends. And I met I met her at this party and sat down and and we just for some reason just <laughs> clicked. Uh, she was much older than I was, um, and but we just always got on incredibly well. Mm. And she invited me over to their house, mm. and then I met Edward, of course. And and your first book was about her. Yes, well, it was well, a second second book. Oh, okay. Um, so what happened was when I came to do my PhD, by then I'd been with Edward and our media for you know quite a while um, because they took me under their wings almost straight away. Well, pretty much straight away. And Edwetta had started to teach me whakapapa and things like that. And when I knew I was going to um, go to the University of Pennsylvania to study language and culture, as sociolinguistics as it was called then, um, I talked to Koro about it and I said, you know, what do you think I should do for my PhD? And he said, well, Ani, if you're serious about learning about Te Māori, the Marais the university for you now. And you know, if you if you want to study that, um, we'll take you. Wow! And that's what they did. They we we spent two years, a lot of the time on the road, um, going to Hui. So that was my first book was Hui, a, a study of Maori ceremonial gatherings, which is still in print. It's gone through lots of editions. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a, that's a remarkable, um, generous gift that you, you I guess you you were given. I just, I've never understood why, um, because Edu Edu was a very important um, Wānanga expert. He was trained in the old way by people out of the last Whare Wānanga Kireake in, in uh, Te Whanau Apanui. And he was a, a very well-known orator and tribal expert. And so to teach me as a young 
Pākehā girl, you know, way back then. Yeah. Uh, it was, I, I've never really understood why he did it. Maybe he just saw that I loved it, you know. I think it's, it's really interesting that probably, in many ways, the primary market for hui was other Māori because that knowledge was, you know, the, the knowledge of the kawa of the marae wasn't formally taught anywhere in right. those years. And, and there were a lot of young urban Māori and Māori that were kind of, you know, regathering the tikanga of their ancestors who were able to access the knowledge of somebody like Eruera, but also lots of other komatu I worked with on that book, uh, through the book. So, you know, they used to, a lot of the audience for that book was actually Māori. We mentioned anthropology, and I kind of feel that there are a lot of us who still don't really understand what anthropology is, which is something I think there, there is a small piece that you wrote for the British Academy. Can you put it in simple terms for us? Well, it's a study of um, humankind, you know. So it's, it's the anthropos, you know, which is people, basically. In my experience as a student, we span from physical anthropology, which begins with the hominids, you know, the human evolution, um, and the history of the evolution of the human species, through to linguistics, which I studied originally, so all the different human languages. Um, and I studied Māori, obviously, but also Lua Nua, which was a Polynesian outlier language, was my master's thesis. Oh. And then the social anthropology. So... You know, it's got these different kind of ways in archaeology, uh, which looks at the remnants of the past. And so it's just different ways of looking at, at the story of humanity. I mean, I was going to ask how different it is from, from being a historian, but clearly it's, it, in a sense, it's broader. It's a lot broader because you're not thinking just about the history of the, of the species, but you're thinking about everything, you know, ecology, law, right. religion different kinds of art forms. It, it's one of those really comprehensive uh, subjects that traverses pretty much all the disciplines, one mm. way and another. Well, I'm, I'm kind of interested in this connection because I'm really leading towards the subject of the arts. It, it strikes me that, and we talk about this a lot on this show, that art is, is a way that we tell the stories of the times. The two things feel like they've become increasingly connected. Uh, well, there's a couple of things. You know, I, I've been exceptionally fortunate with the books because I've won quite a lot of literary awards with them. You know, I've, I, I love being a writer and trying to share uh, whatever it is that I've been thinking about or the knowledge that's sort of come to me from somewhere mm. in a way that's really um, a pleasure to, to encounter rather than really hard work and very inaccessible, which a lot of academic writing can be. But also, um, you've probably noticed that my books are full of images and yes. I love that. I've always put in heaps of uh, images in my books. And it's interesting that artists often um, have approached me and said, I'm doing an exhibition um, and I got the inspiration from you know, some of the images in your book, whatever it was. So Michael, you know, Michelle Tuffery, for example, a yes. whole, whole bunch of artists. I'm always amazed at what they make of what they've read. Yes, well, you, you talk about sort of being in, as an anthropology, in the in-between spaces, the sort of encounter and emergence, which kind of is the, what excites me about arts and culture. I don't know, the crack between things when new things kind of grow and there are mm. encounters. That's exactly it. You've, you know, the, the concept in Māori is the pai, you know, it's the horizon, the edge. Mm. It's the um, threshold of the marae itself. When you're coming onto the marae, the person that leads you on is a pai arahi, and it's the edge between the ancestral realm and everyday life. And all of these edges are, are kind of places of creation and encounter and exchange. And I love that too. Um, 
I, I've always worked closely with artists and I love um, contemporary art and we've always had lots of friends who are artists and, and I think it's because often they get there first. Right. Yeah, yes. before the scholars. Because they're so experimental and they're always pushing at the edges. There's some lovely pieces in the book which are from your work with, say, Lisa Rehana, uh, mm-hmm. Fiona Partington, and there are many others mentioned. I mean, we think of that uh, infected The Pursuit of Venus project of Lisa Rehana's, it feels. Mm. All about encounter, isn't it? I feel really excited at the moment about the art gallery because I'm constantly going in there and being challenged by different different perspectives, and they're, they're largely Māori and Pacific Island perspectives and cultural perspectives, and it almost feels like those worlds of art and anthropology are getting closer and closer at the moment. I don't know if that's something that you have observed or, or feel. I think these are really fertile spaces in New Zealand and Aotearoa, and they're also actually fertile philosophically, which is something which I hope is sort of emerges in the book as well, because a lot of the writing that I've done has been about... For example, when I started writing about voyaging and exploration, at that time, nearly all the scholarship on the European voyages in the Pacific, so Cook, for example, or Tasman, or, or Dufresne, all these different European explorers that I've been encountering and work, writing about for years, um, they were all seen from the decks of the ship and, yes. and kind of taken for granted almost. And when they went to shore, you know, there'd be these kind of tattooed masks sitting on the beach without people behind them, really. Um, They were never really real people um, in a lot of that scholarship because the scholars were trained in European history and in the documents from the voyages. And they had very little, if any, access to oral histories and whakapapa and all that kind of thing. And so when I first came to that kind of writing... Of course, I'd already heard the stories about so many of these ancestors. I'd slept in the marae underneath their carvings. I'd heard about them from people like Eruera and other wānanga experts. I knew chants about them and so on. And so for me, they were always real. And the curious thing that happened when I first started writing about the voyages of Tasman and Cook, for example, was that once I sort of stepped ashore and looked back at the ship, so to speak, and I did a lot of that actually quite literally. Um, Jeremy and I went and travelled to all the sites Mm. and quite often went out on the ocean to have a look at the shore from the sea but equally landed on the shore to look out and figure out where the ship had been and so on. And as I did that, I was not only curious about the people on on the beaches, so to speak, but I got very curious about the Europeans because I realised they're nothing like us either. You know, that the 18th century Navy was you had sailors that believed in witches and yes. you know, that keel-hauling and flogging around the fleet. And, yes. You know, Cook had fought in, in, in battles in wooden warships with cannonballs flying and splinters everywhere. And you cannot assume that you understand your ancestors. And I think a lot of historians, you know, often quite, they do, and ordinary people do. They, they think that Cook you know, came into the Pacific with fridges and cell phones and brought civilization. <laughs> but at the same time on, on board, I mean, you, you, yeah. had, you had the sailors, but you had scientists and artists working pretty closely together. I kind of wonder if we can come, come back to that situation of the science and arts being recognized as being hand in hand. Well, that's one of the things I loved when I was working on that material. So I would go over, I'd find, try and find absolutely everything that survived from the voyage. So I'd go to uh, the Natural History Museum and see you know, the specimens, the botanical specimens that were collected. I'd go and find the maps uh, in the hydrographic office in Taunton, and I would go to the National Archives out at Kew. And, mm. and at that time, they would let me take out the original journals of Cook and all the others. 
And mm. so I was able to work from original manuscripts and all the artworks as well. And of course, you know, the endeavor where, where people sort of see it as an imperial um, kind of vessel, it was a, a Royal Society expedition. And so you had these scientists and artists on board and the artworks are just fantastic for being able to visualize, at least in part, what they saw. And there wasn't that division between the sciences and the arts back then. And I think it was all the richer for it. Yeah. You suggest in your writing that, you know, New Zealand's, I'm thinking around now, that our size makes the sort of cross-cultural transdisciplinary work perhaps more possible here than maybe in a larger culture sometimes. And I do wonder... Mm. You know that, and this is where we 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 might lead in terms of exciting times ahead. You also talk about a need, which is a very urgent need for sort of new paradigms, sort of away from the sort of you know, individualism we've had for things to be more connected. And and, and I see with our you know our Māori Pacific Island artists really leading the way. We, we we're kind of changing the way we might see the arts and culture as a uh, away from the individual to a. It's mm. yeah, it's even more than just the arts and culture. It's kind of the world. Uh, changes. It's a, sh- a shape-shifting world when you're thinking about it in Māori, for example, or through the lens of a Pacific language. It's, it's not the same reality, actually, because some of the deepest assumptions you have about how it works are different. So, for example, in Māori, you know, when you're thinking through whakapapa, everything is interconnected right from first principles. So you are a close relative of a tree because, you know, there's tāne and there's... Mm. And Tane Mahuta was the ancestor of trees, but you know, Tane is also an ancestor of people and so on. And, and the same powers, the winds of growth and life, you know, blew through and animated trees and people. And humans came along pretty late in the story, as they do, did actually in Aotearoa. You know, when you think about our plants and animals, they've been co-evolving here for 80 million years. And we've been here maybe, you know, 800 to 1,000 humans. So we, we've only been here for the blink of an eye. And philosophically, when you're thinking about things like climate change and afforestation and, you know, how to work with ecosystems and humans as part of, part of these wider networks of life, uh, it's easy to think like that mm. if you've got, philo- you know, local philosophies which just work that way. And I found, I found that really liberating. Uh, philosophically. Yeah. It doesn't sound like you've lost any of your spark to carry on. Are you? Have you still got research you're carrying on with now? Yes, well, um, I'm doing a lot of work on environmental issues. And mm. yesterday we launched uh, Recloaking Papatuanuku, which is um, I'm one of the Pure Advantage trustees that launched that initiative yesterday, which is about uh, recloaking the whenua uh, instead of using exotic monocultures. Yes. Um, because I'm from Tairawhiti. Yes, you've, you've, I know you've been very vocal about the slash, which has disturbed many of us to see happen with the, earlier this year particularly. Well, you know, Jeremy and I have this beautiful restoration project that we've been working on for mm. the last 20-odd years, and our river just got absolutely catastrophically smashed. Are the roads fixed to you now? To the... Well, they were, and then we got another dump last weekend, as you know, and probably yeah. seen the slash wrapped around the beaches, you know, yeah. the bridges and on the beaches again in, in Tairawhiti and Gisborne. So um, we've got to think differently about how we work with these landscapes that have been here for so long and we've just arrived and we're kind of thinking we're masters of the cosmos and we can do what we like with it and I think we're being taught that that's actually not very clever. So um, Recloaking Papatuanuku is about using the, the co-evolved species 
not just the plants, but everything in, in a natural forest, including the underground root systems and the soil bacteria, the mycorrhizal fungi, to hold the land together um, and to restore our waterways and to give farmers an extra income uh, as well, because it's all about making sure that the place is habitable for people as well. And it's just such a fantastic project. Thank you, Dame Anne Salmon. Her book of selected writings, Knowledge is a Blessing on Your Mind, is now out, published by Auckland University Press.